If COVID-19 had an official glossary, words like quarantinis and phrases like flattening the curve and Zoom call would all be included. But if there's one phrase that defines the zeitgeist of 2020's global pandemic, perhaps it's social distancing. Now that we've gotten used to the term, we might as well settle into the practice. With scientists suggesting we'll be intermittent social distancing until about 2022, Americans will have a lot of time to fill. Luckily, isolation doesn't mean you can't broaden your horizons. Some new skills may be just what you need to go the distance. Welcome to the Abstract Podcast from Inverse. I'm Tanya Bustos, your host. Our first story examines the strange middle ground between quarantine and regular life, whatever that means. As governments begin to reopen the country, scientists say that life won't be normal in the short term, possibly not even until 2022. In order to make it to that future, models suggest we'll have to intermittent social distance, toggling between switching the practice on and off. Our second story looks at how to bide your time until we make it to this new normal. With the help of some essential at-home tips, you can make the best of your socially distant existence by sharpening your skill set and staving off boredom. This is The Abstract, a look at the latest scientific discoveries and technology innovations from the reporters at Inverse. In each episode, we explore a single theme through two different stories. Up now, why scientists say we may be intermittent social distancing until 2022. How did they come up with this number of six feet? I think they just pulled it out of their rear ends. Protesters in the Capitol Hill neighborhood of Denver, Colorado, formed a traffic jam protest in April 2020 using their voices and car horns to bring attention to what they saw as government overreach in the form of a stay-at-home order issued a little more than a week earlier. The order was put into place by the spread of COVID-19. The state has seen more than 10,000 cases and more than 480 deaths. What you just heard perhaps perfectly exemplifies the divide among frustrated Americans. One thing is clear, there's no agreement in sight when it comes to the end of social distancing. And experts warn that the practice won't just go away with the snap of our fingers. They say we should be prepared for a strange middle ground between quarantine and regular life. We're still figuring that part out. Mark Lipsich, professor of epidemiology at Harvard, put it this way in an April 2020 press conference. It seems like the big questions at the moment focus around the extent to which social distancing and other countermeasures are working in this country. Although I think the, mostly the jury is still out, but that's clearly a crucial issue. And I think the question of how to emerge from this crisis, we sort of have grabbed a life raft and are trying to figure out what to do to immediately save lives, but we need to figure out both short-term and long-term plans. This strange world of limbo is where intermittent social distancing comes in. It basically gives the measure an off and on switch, and experts say America may very well have its hand on that switch until 2022. So what will this new world look like, and how do you just switch social distancing off and on? Joining us to help figure this all out is Inverse staff writer Emma Betwell. Hey, Emma, how's it going? I'm good. How are you, Tanya? Hanging in. It's an interesting concept to toggle social distancing off and on. So first off, what will the government base that on? What kind of data will guide these loosening of restrictions? A lot of it is going to come down to how many people have been exposed to the coronavirus or how many people end up being immune to the coronavirus. Right now, we're basically working with 
two major questions. Um, how many people have been exposed and how long does that immunity last? There are lots of studies going on right now to try and figure out that second question, which, or sorry, that first question, which is how many people in the population have been exposed. So one thing you can do to look for that is to do an antibody test. So that's a blood test. And you're looking for basically uh, the lingering traces that your immune system has sort of left behind as it's fought the coronavirus. So these very specific virus specific fighting uh, antibodies in your blood. And we're actually using them as treatment for coronavirus too, but they're a way that we can tell if somebody has potentially had it. And they recently, just in the past week, there were two studies that came out, one out of Santa Clara in uh, California and one out of LA, um, suggesting that um, decently low, around four or 5% of the population of both places had been exposed to the coronavirus. But those studies have since been the subject of quite a lot of criticism, and there have been some issues that have been identified in their methods. So really, um, the research is still ongoing on that front. And as for how long does immunity last, that's another thing we don't really know. If it's long-lasting immunity, we could be in great shape. You might get the virus once, and then after it sort of runs through the population, assuming we don't overload the hospitals, we might be set. Um, if it's short-lasting immunity or we don't become immune at all, then we've got a lot more social distancing ahead of us. So when we do get there, you know, when we do loosen restrictions, there obviously needs to be these baseline measures in place. So can you give us an idea of what that means for a potential new normal? Yeah, so the situation that was proposed in a model made by uh, epidemiologists at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, they go through sort of a a model called intermittent social distancing. So that means that we're gonna sort of toggle between these on periods when we are really in, I mean, the lockdown that we're experiencing right now and maybe off periods where um, we're gonna live a version of, of normal. Um, and that version will definitely look different from normal. Um, so I spoke to an outside epidemiologist who said that that sort of version of normal is still gonna look like most people working from home, most people either going to school a limited amount of days per week or doing as much remote schooling as we can. Um, and basically everybody's wearing masks in public. That's sort of the reality here. Um, it's something we're not really gonna be seeing many summer concerts. Um, and if restaurants open, we're probably only gonna see about half capacity. A few diners will maybe be allowed to be inside at once. Um, we may also see things like uh, temperature checks at the entry of major public settings. We've already seen that happening in Italy. Um, so even when we're not strictly social distancing, life is still a little bit different. Um, I know that's definitely not the most like heartwarming thing. When I first was reporting the story, I had to go sort of walk around in the park and sort of cope with you know, the idea that normal is going to look a lot different. But the hope is that if we can really stop this virus from overwhelming our healthcare systems, we might actually be able to loosen the restrictions a little. Yeah, it, it's so funny how, I mean, what normal even means to anyone. Normal is different everywhere. Different cities and states have their own version of what's happening. Um, and sentiment also factors in. I wouldn't be surprised if not everyone just dives back into society, depending on what you've had to withstand. It seems like just geographically, we'll all have to come to terms with whatever normal means as well. Yeah, I think that so much of what normal is, is how comfortable you feel living your normal life. 
a lot of people are starting to think about what the long-term psychological consequences of this lockdown is going to be. I mean, when is the next time you're going to go on a Tinder date with somebody? Um, and we actually have people writing stories about these very things right now. So a lot to look forward to as we sort of dig into that issue. But um, there was actually a Gallup poll released and they spoke um, that spoke a little bit to how people feel about resuming normal life. So they found that people living in small or uh, rural towns, uh, about 23% of people said that they would readily return to normal activities uh, right away. Um, and people who live in cities, that was only about 15%. So it will, to some extent, matter where you live. Um, in some places, social distancing is really difficult to do in Manhattan, it's very difficult to social distance. But if you're in a more rural place, that might be somewhat easier to do. Right. What you said about um, immunity was very interesting. We haven't figured out how long people are immune for, or a whole lot we haven't figured out with regards to immunity. But could you further get into how that might shift course in loosening these restrictions? That seems like the biggest deal here overall. The duration of immunity definitely feels like a big question right now. So in the science paper, um, which was authored by the, the team from Harvard, they suggest that if immunity is short-term, so that means like 40 weeks after you've had the virus, we may end up with something like annual outbreaks of the coronavirus. That is not something any of us wants to happen. So we're going to hope that that's not the case. But if that is the case, we'll figure out a way to deal with it. Um, if immunity lasts longer than that, let's say that you're immune for two years, that could favor something like a biannual outbreak of the virus. And if immunity ends up being permanent, then the virus could disappear for five or more years after sort of going through this second wave. So the length of that immunity question is pretty important. And ultimately, you know, until we get a vaccine, it seems like a pre-pandemic life is pretty unattainable. But Emma, really, really great piece. Thanks so much for the time. Yeah, thanks, Tanya. I appreciate it. Being alone and distanced socially doesn't mean you have to be bored. Up now, how to hone in on your social distancing skills. Here we go. We get a one, personal space, two, personal space, three, stay out of my personal space, four, keep away from my personal space, five, get out of that personal space, six, stay away from my personal space, seven, personal space. It's finally the perfect time to learn how to play the piano or learn Mandarin, clean your floor, bake keto muffins, Knit. What are you doing now that we're quarantined? Well, I'm gonna learn how to cook. I'm gonna show you guys how to make duct tape slime. I've been walking my dog a lot. A great way to get out there while still social distancing yourself is to go fishing. Once you've exhausted through it all, and now that your house is spotless for once, by this point, social distancing has become a household phrase and you a household fixture. It could be weeks or even months before things get back to a pre-COVID-19 existence. So why not become a tad more well-rounded with some new expertise? There are a lot of things you can pick up for free thanks to the one non-hoardable resource we're all relying on, the internet. Because being socially distant doesn't mean you can't broaden your skill set. Joining the abstract with more on this is Inverse Mind and Body Editor, Sarah Sloat. How's it going, Sarah? I'm good. How are you? I am good. Um, so let me ask you, have you uh, taken up any new hobbies in your social uh, distancing experiment? In some ways, yes. I would say on average, I'm not the most 
dedicated chef. I do love the Indian food restaurant around the corner, um, but I am trying to cook more meals and also try the classic trickier New York Times recipes. Try to flex that muscle a little bit more now that staying inside is the priority. I think that's my next step is maybe cooking. Lately, I've been, um, I'm still in my frozen pizza phase. I literally bought every uh, frozen pizza brand that they sell and that's what I eat. <laughs> it's also tasty. Also tasty. Don't blame it. It's, uh, it's working out just fine. The whole point is that everyone is getting back into old hobbies lately, maybe adopting new ones. Like you said, cooking. Me, I'm working out. You know, people are finding their inner craftsperson, their inner artist, and things can certainly take our minds off of things and calm us down, art in particular. But I mean, and what's great about the internet is all of the inner artists on YouTube having a moment right now. Yeah, I agree. I think that if you are curious about art, the internet has the guidance you may be looking for. You know, there's a lot of wonderful artists on Instagram and on YouTube who provide tutorials and, you know, they're teaching in everything from learning how colors work together to the basics of what tools to even buy in order to, you know, try to learn to paint. Um, and I have some, I have some favorites that I've discovered in my own journey. Uh, for example, there's this gentleman named Tio Yichi. He's a graphic artist who works in Singapore. He has a great YouTube channel and he shows how to sketch and watercolor. He has a really great grasp at like color theory. And he's also, he's also seems like a very kind soul. He just recently put up a video discussing about the need to socially distance during these times. And I also enjoy a 24-year-old American artist. His name is Kevin Hill. A friend of mine called him the millennial Bob Ross. He is very gentle approach to painting. He does acrylic and oil, which, you know, like oil to me is like, oh, that seems so intimidating. But he really breaks it down and does these lovely landscape paintings that I think are, you know, maybe just what we need right now. Yeah. A, a millennial Bob Ross sounds perfect right about now. <laughs> I have to ask you, have you seen all of these posts on Instagram of, of people reading and posing with books? Um, that seems to be the new thing. I, A, love that, but I I haven't seen that yet. But maybe I should. You know, I read a, I sat in the backyard this weekend and I, I read a book just start to finish. And that was, that was my day. Yeah, all of a sudden people are reading or at the very least posting pictures of themselves with books asking you to believe that they read because I strongly believe that that's at play. But for those who are for real and want to get back to those classics and like I always say I want to go back and read some classical literature that I maybe didn't or glossed over. Mm, yes, I mean, I, I firmly believe that reading is a lot better when you don't have to do it. I think a lot of times when we're introduced to Shakespeare, it's because it's through a course, but it is nice to be able to approach that work on your own. You know, I think something that makes the text a bit richer is understanding how it fit into the context of its time. And, you know, luckily for people like myself, there's scholars like, for example, Jonathan Bate. He's a biographer of Shakespeare and a professor at Arizona State University. He recently made his courses on Shakespeare free as a resource for, and this is a quote from his Twitter, working remotely in a time of plague. So he, he, he understands the context of our days and is, you know, doing us a solid by providing a, a, a resource that you would normally have to go to university to get access to. 
you know, let's talk about coding. That's that that's emerged as uh, a new point of interest. We used to think that it was vaguely this vaguely understood skill, right? Reserved for tech nerds in Silicon Valley. But in recent years, we really have seen it's become a in-demand skill in the workforce. And, you know, a lot of people are struggling in the workforce right now. Now's the time a skill like this could really come in handy, you know, create that site, build that brilliant app idea you had. There are so many different coding courses out there that I think that you also just have to have a really careful eye and read the reviews before you sign up for any of them. But you can learn the basics of Python, for example, which is a programming language with a free course from the University of Toronto. Other programs teach you the fundamentals of HTML so you can make your own site. You know, you could learn how to make an Android app on the, there's a website called Skillshare that has a bunch of different online courses you could take a peek at. So, you know, if you find yourself thinking, you know, I wish there was an app for that. Do it. It's your idea. You might as well be the one who profits from it. I'm still trying to think of that actual idea, but um, I'm on it. Maybe I'll come up with something. Side project. (laughs) Exactly. Knowledge is often the best defense against anything. And obviously we're all jilted by this pandemic. A lot of us are looking to understand things, grasp things, you know, make make sense out of things. How can we use this time to take matters into our own hands and, and educate ourselves about what's going on and, and just about disease in general? Getting a strong sense of understanding um, really brings my anxiety levels down a bit. And when we encounter something like a pandemic, like COVID-19, at the heart of it, you know, it is a, a it is a slice of science that we're encountering. And, you know, science involves understanding what diseases are. And, you know, you have that capability. You know, if you want to take the academic approach again, there's more free courses out there for you. You know, Penn State has one that's titled The Dynamics of Infectious Diseases that teaches you the difference between pandemic, epidemic, and outbreak. At the University of Copenhagen, you could take a general course on global health. And I would just, you know, it, it's, it's all too easy to spiral into reading the news all the time, but um, there's some really wonderful, helpful explainers out there being produced, you know, our site, but also the Atlantic and the New York Times, you know, these credible sources of information. So I think it's nice to get a sense of why disease happen, why they spread. And um, that understanding can hopefully provide a bit of comfort right now. Absolutely. And but it's probably wise to uh, warn to tread cautiously there. It can uh, open up a whole big can of worms, especially if you're the nervous type. Yeah, there's a lot more at inverse.com as always. Sarah, thanks. Yeah, thank you for having me. Head to inverse.com to read more about what lies ahead for social distancing, quarantining, and getting back to normal in the wake of COVID-19. You can click on the link in the show notes for that story and all others we talked about today. If you agree that science and facts matter more than ever, give us a rating and review on iTunes to help more people find The Abstract and other podcasts like it. New episodes of The Abstract are released three times a week. Find old episodes and more original reporting on science, innovation, culture, and entertainment at inverse.com. Look for the Abstract Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever podcast app you use. For Inverse, I'm Tanya Bustos. Thanks for listening.